This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is giftedness, and we'll probably get a little bit into the relationship between faith and work and where God has you those kinds of questions. Uh, we think God knows what he's doing, but we are here to talk about uh, about how that works. And my guests are, uh, are such good friends, we're going to have a good time. <laughs> uh, so I've got George Hillman here to my right, and uh, I'm getting your official title. I'm reading it right out of the catalog until yeah. I get it right. <laughs> I mean, he's chair and associate professor of educational ministries and leadership. Now that used to be Christian Ed, right? The old Christian Ed and spiritual formation and leadership departments. We okay. merged those two departments together. Okay, so so we're now this, it's it's a now a new wedding, right? A new That's family. right. We're like the Brady Bunch. Okay, well <laughs> that I believe. And then I've got Bill Hendricks here to my left, who's just come on board as the executive director for Christian leadership at the Hendricks Center. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So welcome aboard, Bill. Thank you. Good We're to here, here to discuss, as we talked about, giftedness and faith and work, and in particular get in a little bit into this book that Bill has written called The Person Called You, Why You're Here, Why You Matter, and What You Should Do With Your Life. And now that I'm 60, you know, I get this. <laughs> so uh, It's not too late for you. Yeah, that's right. Well, I got, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe I'll be productive. Anyway, so it, it's a real pleasure to, to have you all with us. And I thought the way we would start, just to kind of get the ball rolling, is to have uh, each of us kind of tell our stories about how we ended up where God had us and kind of what the signs were along the way, or maybe where there weren't signs, where we were struggling. Uh, to kind of sort that out, and Bill, I know I know a little bit of your story. I'm going to let you start. So, yeah. tell us how how did how'd you end up where you are? Well, in a way, it goes back to about age 30. Mm -hmm. um, my wife Nancy said to me, "Listen, I put I put you through two master's degrees, and you know I'm tired of doing that. I want you to get out there and make some money because I want to stay home and have babies." And she kind of called the question. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't know what to do with my life. And people were saying, oh, but Bill, you know, you, you went to Harvard, you've, you've got these two master's degrees, you could do anything you so want. So what were you prepared to do? Uh, well, I had a degree in English and then I had a degree in mass communications and a, a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies here from DTS. So you could have done the Bible, you could have written, you could have uh, – mass well, communications there, was, yeah. was what? Well, you could go into corporate communications and write PR releases and – Stuff like that, okay. and that that kind of interested me. Except that I really didn't know anything about the corporate world. I mm -hmm. didn't come from that background, mm -hmm. and I was just lost at that point. I didn't know what to do. And it was about that time that somebody put me through the process that I now use to help people figure out what their giftedness is, and therefore really clues as to their calling. And it was like somebody turned the light on in a pitch black room. Mm -hmm. It was just like. Oh my gosh, now I get it. Now I know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And you've been basically doing that ever since and consulting and helping people kind of get located in terms yeah, of where they're headed. Yeah, exactly. Once you landed, you're helping other people land. 
Yeah, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. Initially, I was I was doing uh, communication projects, mm-hmm. writing ventures, publishing ventures, video. Um, people that had a message and they needed a, a medium and a strategy, and I'd help them figure that out. One of the people that I helped with w- was the guy who had developed the process that I use, and I'd always had such respect for him. And uh, he was having trouble getting a manuscript published, and so he cried uncle and let me get in there and help him. Mm-hmm. And I realized as I was working on this project how taken I am with this phenomenon of human giftedness. Mm-hmm. And I just decided to reinvent my consulting practice around it. So that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years is helping individuals think through their strategic life and career directions. Yeah, so in the midst of talking about your having joined the seminary and the center, I actually forgot to mention your role uh, the, uh, with giftedness. Why don't you tell people what you do? Yes, I also have a consulting practice called the Giftedness Center based here in Dallas. And as I said, uh, we work with individuals to help them think through their life and career directions. The simple way that I explain that at a party or something when people ask me what I do is I say, I help people figure out what they're going to do when they grow up. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets that. Yeah. And most everybody will say, oh, then I need to come see you. Mm-hmm. And these are often very successful people. But what I've discovered is that for many, many, many baby boomers in particular, um, even if they're successful in life, they live with this angst about, yeah, but what should I have done with my life? Yeah. And of course, with the millennials, their children, the question, what should I do with my life, is like T-H-E number one issue on their mind. Mm -hmm. And everything else kind of has to salute that because that's so determinative. Right, exactly. George, what's your story? Yeah, so you can kind of think of my story kind of in two parts of okay. how did I end up in ministry and then the craziness of how I ended up here at Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay. You know, I always tell people, I keep waiting for them to figure out, what are you doing here at the seminary? <laughs> Love the job. Um, had gone to college. I originally was going to be a park ranger. Loved the outdoors hmm. to this day. Was a biology major and got down to chordate anatomy in organic chemistry. So it wasn't Smokey the Bear that did it to you. No, no, it wasn't Smokey the Bear. I still would love to be Smokey the Bear at times. But just realized I loved the lab aspect. I loved certain aspects, but then other aspects I just really didn't love. But I love people. I mean, I'm a people guy, and I love that stuff. And so graduated with a social work degree and ended up with Boy Scouts of America. Still love Boy Scouts. It was that combination of outdoors plus people, you know, people both those types of things. Um, but in the course of even doing that, great job, had great independence. I only had to go in the office two days a month. I mean, how good is that? But God was still just kind of working on my heart. And we actually switched United Way agencies, switched from Boy Scouts of America to YMCA, mm-hmm. and we moved to Fort Worth to start seminary. And I just thought, oh, I'll take a class here or there, you know, and eventually, you know, I'll figure things out. Well, I'm just taking classes along, working at the YMCA. My wife is teaching school, and it finally got time to the internship. This is why I love internships here at the seminary. And I had to figure out, well, what do I want to do with my internship? Well, I had a good college experience. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, I'd love to do some college ministry. And I had an opportunity to go to the University of Georgia for nine months to do an internship with what they used to call Baptist Student Union. Oh, yeah. And that nine months turned into seven years. Hmm. Just it as immediately once I hit campus, once I got involved there, I 
loved was it. Was it all at Georgia? Yeah, it was all at Georgia. Oh, I didn't we, know we, that. we were at UGA that whole yeah. time. Yeah. And so, you know, doing stuff with uh, Baptist Student Union. I also got involved with the Baptist Church there. My wife went on staff at the Baptist Church there. And um, I was continuing on my seminary degree from a distance, those types of things. But we just loved our season that yeah, was my there. My daughter graduated from Georgia. Yeah, I remember yeah, the connection yeah, with stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Well, Coming here, we moved back here to the Dallas area. We have family here. And I loved the opportunities to do internships. I loved the opportunities to work with students. And I had actually developed a good relationship here on campus with Aubrey Malfers. Mm -hmm. Aubrey used to run the internship program mm -hmm. back then. Yeah. And Aubrey said, we're doing some changes here on the seminary. We'd love to bring in an outsider. Would you remotely be interested? Hmm. I still love my church. I've been at my church 16 years, and um, I wasn't looking for anything. I didn't even have a resume. But it's one of those things where God just came along. In both instances, God just came along, and it wasn't what I was planning. But I look back, and it absolutely fits perfectly. So here at the seminary, I've been here now 13 years. This mm -hmm. is just glorified college ministry. Yeah. Um, I love being on a campus. Mm -hmm. I love the life change, those conversations of what do you want to be when you grow up. Right. And so for 12 years, I ran the internship program here and just loved having – I'd have that conversation 300 times a year mm -hmm. with students, easily, oh, yeah. Yeah. and uh, being able to place students around the world with mm -hmm. things like that. And yeah, so my journey as I look back – it makes absolutely perfect sense. In the midst of it, I had no clue mm -hmm. where God was leading me on that. Yeah. Well, my story is very similar. Mm -hmm. I was headed to radio, TV, and film. I was going to be doing a sports broadcaster. That's, I knew that. Yeah. Was... And uh, it could still uh, happen. Yeah. I know. And so I was uh, clicking away, and then I came to the Lord in college. Started a Bible study in our apartment with the. The guy I was rooming with my sophomore year. We started off with six people my sophomore year. By my senior year, we had enough people coming to the Bible study, college-age students, that we literally were filling a four-bedroom apartment, and there were people in every room. Wow. Where there, we actually didn't have space to deal with everybody that we were dealing with. And then I took an adult Sunday school class at the church my senior year, and it went from like 12 to 120 in two semesters. And mm. so it was kind of like, maybe this is what I should be doing. Yeah, yeah. So I went on to seminary, and uh, I ended up here completely kind of like your situation. I was just teaching along. I had been talked to the seminary about perhaps coming back after five years. It was going to be in Bible X originally. And uh, and they ended up uh, contacting me. The day I brought my second daughter home from the hospital in Scotland, I got a letter from Dr. Campbell saying, would you be interested in, in New Testament? They're, they need to start a doctoral program. You're going to be finished. They'll be in position to do that. Would you mind thinking about New Testament instead of Bible X? And this this is how profoundly I was thinking. I just need a job. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to teach the Bible if it's in English or yeah. in Greek. Who cares? I mean, you know. So uh, and I ended up here, and I've I've literally been here ever since. And and. What's interesting is, is you know, you think the radio, TV, and film start has nothing to do with where you're, what you're going to do, and what you're going to end up. Well, it has everything to do. It has right. everything to do with it. Look at where I'm sitting, what right. I'm doing, and so it, it's exactly that reflection of, of looking back. You can see. God kind of playing with the pieces. I mm -hmm. think sometimes He sits in heaven and says, "I'm going to have fun with this," you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and plays it out that way. Okay, well, that so the point is, is that I, I think it'd be fair to say probably that none of us have ended up doing what we thought we were going to be doing at the start. 
Yeah. I mean, it's certainly. So yeah. so that's an important lesson. That means you're not going to necessarily always pin down what you're going to be. That's very rare that people actually know from childhood mm -hmm. what they're going to do. Occasionally you find somebody who's precocious mm -hmm. and knew from the day one they wanted to be a sportscaster or yeah. they mm -hmm. wanted to be a journalist or whatever. But that's very, very rare. Yeah, my son is kind of an exception. He's, he's, do, he's doing sports law, and he knew in the eighth grade what he wanted to do hmm. and had literally pursued a career path to, to get there and uh, hmm. checked all the boxes. In fact, he checked additional boxes in talking to people. He says, well, if I want to do this, what should I do? You need to go to law school. He's going, well, that wasn't in the plan. you know. But he, that's what he ended up doing, and, and you know that's how he ended up. But you're right. It's the exception rather than – the rule. I think about my own kids. They've they've wandered all over the place in terms of where they've started versus where they've ended up. Well, we kind of joke because you know we were talking before. Mm -hmm. I've got an eighteen year old in college right now. Mm -hmm. We all stress about what's your major going to. Well, none of us are doing what we majored in, and mm -hmm. so you know I think we put a lot of pressure on eighteen year olds. You know that reminds me of something that you did in the book, Bill. That that uh, I think is worth bringing up at this point because it fits so nicely. You, you you have a way of saying things very gently. You said that parents <laughs> parents tell their kids. A lot of crock. <laughs> well, the parents mean well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so I figure. Well, I saw that, and I went, "I'm going to ask him about that." Uh, so, uh, what? What? I mean, when you were talking about those kinds of things, what? What kinds of advice do we often give that, if we thought about it, we might take back? Well, I think parents have the best intentions in the world for their kids. Mm -hmm. But the parents will tend to suggest to the kids what works for the parents. Mm -hmm. because of the way they see life, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily realize how the, their child sees life. And so they will recommend, well, here's a field where jobs are growing. You should get into that, never considering is that a good fit for that child. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you should go to this college because I went there and, you know, it's a great school. Well, you know, you haven't taken into account how your child learns mm -hmm. and what kind of an environment they need. So I'll just say in general, uh, parents often have expectations for their kids um, that, that have nothing to do with how this child is really put together. And, and uh, I mean, th there's communities in the Dallas area, for instance, where there's only – if you're a, a male, a, you, you know, you're an 18-year-old male – there's only about five or six career options that are really open to you. You mm -hmm. can you can become a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, um, a, a real estate guy, you know. And if you're very fortunate and you make it work, you can become an entrepreneur. But after that, hmm. there's insurance sales. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> in that in that community, the, yeah. that's not even that's a little yeah. suspect, you yeah. know. Yeah. God forbid you're you're a person who says I really want to play the cello. Yeah. Oh, that 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 that's not really that acceptable. Uh -huh. And I've I, I literally had a lawyer once I worked with. I, I, he he you know was hating his job, hating life, wanted to find something else. I said, well, how'd you get into law in the first place? He said, well, that's easy. When I was a senior in college, um, a bunch of us fraternity buddies were sitting around one day and talking about what we were going to do. And these two guys that I was close to said, well, we're going to law school. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. So I, that's how I ended up in law school. Wow. He literally gave it that much thought. Wow. And, and the problem is that our culture does not know how to get people from high school graduation into the adult world of work. Mm -hmm. And the result is that we now have tens of millions of millennials that are wandering around out here lost as lambs. And we also have 
countless boomers who actually faced the, the same problem in, in our day. And as I said earlier, you know, they're, they're still wondering what they should have done with their life. You know, you mentioned that you had 300 conversations a week uh, with, with interns asking, you know, what should I do with my life? It's much more problematic when people have graduated right. and gotten into work and now they're 40, 50 years old and they're saying, what should I be doing with my life? Well, another thing, too, I don't know if y'all <laughs> priced college here recently. I mean, we're at a private school. It's $56,000 yeah. a year. Yes. Yeah. So I'm putting down a quarter of a million dollars. And you know this, millennials, mm -hmm. the job market, various things like this. My 22, 23, 24-year-old is back home, not employed. Boomerang. Right. Yep. And I've spent all this money, and so now what happens, the next parent comes along and they ask me, well, what should I do? I say, well, go to community college and things like this. There's a, I mean, there's a lot involved with this. Mm -hmm. A lot of, you know, student, you hear the student debt thing. Yes. All that's related together. Mm -hmm. All that's related together. Yeah, we've done a whole series of podcasts on what's called emerging adulthood or emerging adolescence. It's talking about how the the entry into what is defined culturally as full life, married, married, you know, beginning to have kids, has been all pushed back right. almost an entire decade. Yes. And the sociological impact that that has, I know my son, when I talk to him, he's single, uh, he's in his 30s, and he's, you know, and I ask him about kind of what he's thinking, and he says, well, Dad, he says, I really don't feel I'm in a position to get married because I've got all this debt that mm -hmm. I have accumulated, and I'd like to get that a little more taken care of so I feel like I can provide for a family. Right. So it's it, the dynamics of what's going on here, and, and the whole idea of social pressure and how social pressure works on us to define who we are and what we do and the impact that it has. I mean, I, your opening illustration of there are certain parts of the city where there are only five acceptable job categories, even though there are myriads of possibilities of what someone could do, uh, automatically limits what your options are in terms of what's acceptable for for your family and your culture, that is a big impact. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So part of what we want to do and, and talk about and, and, and think a little bit about is how do, you, how, do you, how do you mix and match? How do you take the way God made you and... Uh, and kind of figure out what, what God has made you to do, I, I guess would be, might be the way to ask the question. Uh, and, and Bill, what do you, what do you, what, where do we start with the Well, with you that? have to start with how God made you. And I suppose even before that, why is it important to start there? If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, um, God speaks the worlds into existence, but then when he gets to human beings, he uses, as it were, with his own hands to fashion a man and a woman. The very first words that he says to those two people are in regard to their work, mm -hmm. which tells you something about the importance of work. Exactly. And he says, be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth, make it fruitful. You know, the earth on its own is not very fruitful. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know when the last time you looked, but here's a mountain over here and it's got ore in it. I've never seen a Mercedes Benz just come popping out of the mountain. Mm -hmm. 
only the the the, uh, the the earth gives us raw resources, but only humans can add the value to make those resources useful. Well, to that end, to make the world fruitful, God has given each of us some form of giftedness by which to do that. That's how we add value. And we need all kinds of giftedness in this world. Yeah, the, I, I call it the creation mandate and that uh, putting the creation mandate with the great commission mandate is sometimes something is sometimes something we do not do. Right. And, uh, uh, and so we'll tell the gospel story, but we won't tell the why God made us story. Well, the guy, why God made us story fits into why the, why the gospel becomes good news. And, and living out the way you're designed to live is a very important part of, of living out uh, the way life works. You know, George, you work with uh, and you're responsible for a, a department that's called Educational Ministries and Leadership, which sounds Sounds terribly impressive. At least I know we're getting educated leaders. So, uh, but, uh, but as you think about this question, the way God made us and, and, and how to begin and thinking about giftedness, what, what, do you, what do you wrestle with, particularly since you deal with a department that, yeah. that sh- talks about shaping people and, and helping them think through how they approach life and their walk with the Lord. Yeah, so as I, I think about the population at Dallas Seminary, mm-hmm. I, I, and I do this with all my intro students, I really see the population, you can clump it into three groups. Mm-hmm. You have probably one-third of our students who they came out of the womb knowing they were going to be a senior pastor, mm-hmm. and all their life they heard that or a missionary or whatever the case may be. And you know, Those are fun students to work with. Yeah. They, you just got to point them in the right direction and get them going. Mm-hmm. There's a middle third. That mm-hmm. middle third is who I was. Mm-hmm. I knew I was supposed to be here, mm-hmm. but I wasn't really sure why. Mm-hmm. Um, the analogy I always say in class, um, you know, God doesn't give us maps, He gives us flashlights. Mm-hmm. And I just knew the next step. Next mm-hmm. step was to come here. And so this really became – seminary became an exploratory thing for me mm-hmm. to try things. And so as I was saying, my story, my internship changed my life. Mm-hmm. Those nine months, which turned into seven years, Mm -hmm. it changed my life because I finally was able to see the pieces connecting. Then I think there's another third of students Mm -hmm. that just come to seminary and they're just saying, hey, the church isn't giving me enough Bible, the I want more theology. I personal development. Personal development. I don't plan on being working at a church. I plan on being in the business world. You know those types of things. And so we're working with all three Mm -hmm. types of students. And so especially for that middle group, I want to be able to help that middle group to explore those things. Mm -hmm. This is a safe environment to go try some stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You think you're, you know, we're doing chapel messages this week, and Mm -hmm. we're hearing about China. Well, go to China. Mm-hmm. Go for two weeks. Go try and see these types of things. For this third group, mm-hmm. the group that's my businessmen, the mm-hmm. group that's coming here for their own personal development, I think a lot of times they look at these first other two groups mm-hmm. and they think, well, I'm not worthy. I'm not, you know, um, I'm not even sure I should even be here. And so for this group, it's really being able to come alongside them and, and showing them value, mm-hmm. saying again, it, it, it's wonderful that we have godly lawyers and doctors and businessmen exactly. um, who are making theologically sound decisions that are dealing with the ethics and those types of things. And there's so many of those students that come, they say, there's no place for me. And mm-hmm. this is exactly where you need to be as well. Mm-hmm. So I think as a seminary, and I think that's a difference in maybe over the last 15 years or 20 years of seminary education is that our population has expanded. Mm-hmm. If you came to DTS 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 
preachers and missionaries. Mm -hmm. And now we have the entire gamut of folks. And so what we get to do is help kind of deal with all three of those populations. For that first group, that group who comes out saying, this is exactly what I need to be doing, we get to come alongside and confirm, confirmation Mm -hmm. of calling. Um, Illustration I give. Mm Y'all watch American Idol, mm-hmm. and you'll see the, when they do the tryout shows, mm-hmm. and you always have that person who can't carry a note, but their mama told them they were the best singer. Mm-hmm. They get to come, and they get to have somebody besides their mama, somebody <laughs> besides their home church say, you know, you really are a good preacher. You really mm-hmm. are a good communicator. And so we get to come alongside and confirm what m- their family, what some of their friends were saying. I that is you, where I thought that illustration I thought yeah. was going. I thought, Simon Cowell. <laughs> no, you you're going to be Simon Cowell. No. Well, and you know what? <laughs> but you know what? For some, <laughs> he couldn't be Simon yeah, Cowell. You could. could be Simon <laughs> Cowell. <laughs> but there are, for some of those students, you need to sit down and say, you know, I love you, <laughs> yeah. but you can't do those things. And again, it's... It's not a values thing. It's not this hierarchy of, well, here's the missionaries and here's the senior pastors and, oh, sports lawyer, that's lower on the totem pole. It's not that at all. They all have value in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. In fact, that whole thing of God in his infinite wisdom created a closed system and the resources that are there. And when we're able to unleash that Mm -hmm. in the church... It's amazing with what happens with those things. So again, our department gets to work with all three of those. We have the different conversations as we go along the lines. And and, and I think it's really really important. I've seen this change in my life in my lifetime here at, at the seminary. I was telling Bill before we walked over. I'm in my 33rd year here at Dallas, and when I came to seminary, I mean the bulk of people were headed for the church, or were headed for teaching, or were headed for the mission field. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. parachurch was barely tolerated. You know. Uh, and and uh, to think about a person who was going to be a full time in full time business being here. Well, they must have had a lot of extra time. I right. mean, you know. Right. So, um, uh, and that's changing. That there there's a sense in which um, the appreciation of the person who's going to give themselves full time to a vocation, but wants to get grounded as being you know the best equipped Christian they can be, whether it be to be a good elder or to just be a good Sunday school teacher, or just for the personal enrichment of influencing the people that are around them. Uh, We have a lot more students here who are in that category, and the cool thing is is that that's being affirmed, that we haven't – we don't have this church and secular divide on the campus that uh, that says, well, here are our primary citizens and then they're, you know, we, we've got space for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. I think that's a very, very important development in the way things have been going. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about let, – let's talk about the search. Your, your book, Bill, is really about a per, helping a person find – I would say not only what they do well, but what they're motivated to do, what, right. uh, which I would take is a way of saying, what are you built to do? All right. And you can never ask a person that directly because the truth is they don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they're not bright and they're not you know, reflective. It's because each of us lives inside our skin. Mm-hmm. And because you live inside your skin, you can't see your own face. It's a physical impossibility. You don't to measure see your, own your face. impact. You can't measure your impact without someone giving you feedback. Right, and yeah. and so the same is true for your giftedness. You mm-hmm. live inside your skin, and when you're using this giftedness that God has given you, you're not thinking about using it. You're just using it. Mm-hmm. it doesn't seem remarkable. Mm-hmm. You see other people's giftedness, mm-hmm. but you don't perceive your own. And so, somebody from the outside has to come along and hold up a mirror. Mm-hmm and say, here's what you're doing, and mm-hmm. here's the value of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like your 
you know, illustration of confirming, you know, you you do belong in a pulpit. Mm-hmm. But of course, as we mentioned, you got the person who you go, eh, that's really not such a good choice for you. Yeah. Then they end up like Socrates, who, who of whom it was said he always had a voice in his head <laughs> that told him what not to do, but it never told him what to do. Mm-hmm. And I find a lot of people know, well, I, I shouldn't do this, and I don't want to do this, and I'm not good at this, and I don't want that. But I don't know what I want to do. Right. You know, that's what I was at age 30. And you wish you had an owner's manual on yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that told you, you know, you, you work on a computer or a car, you check the owner's manual to find out what was this machine designed to do? What does it do best? Well, some people check the owner's manual. <laughs> <laughs> they should. <laughs> yeah. You know, what are the other pieces of equipment around this thing that make it effective? And, and the warning labels, whatever you do, don't do that. Yeah. Don't you wish you had an owner's manual? On, on yourself and on other people. Well, I, I represent that there is a kind of an owner's manual, and it's this phenomenon of human giftedness. Mm-hmm. That, that what we discover is that from the womb, the person begins living a certain way, and it's by virtue of how God has made them. They get interested in certain things. They, they are motivated under certain circumstances. They use certain abilities that, that are instinctively natural for them, and they enjoy using them. Uh, they they play different roles relative to other people, and there's always a motivational thrust or outcome that they're seeking. And so one person, they see life as a problem to be solved, and so they're a problem solver. And over here is somebody who wants to build and develop and form and shape things. And over here is somebody who wants to get a response from people. And, and somebody over here wants to take an idea and, and make it real. And, and so we find all these different forms of giftedness in the world, and they're there because God made people to do these things. And so we've got to help people discover, well, what is that owner's manual for me? Because on their own, they won't instinctively figure that out. And so that's that's why community is important. Uh, watching people function is important. Getting the feedback that's important in in developing that and affirming in some cases and saying, well, maybe not. And I, I take it, George, that's what you guys do in the internships is basically well, and, that and even and in even our spiritual formation process that's here on too, campus yes. as well. So yep. the idea of the context of community, mm-hmm. you will be amazed at how many times. Even I'll ask a student, well, what does your wife think? Mm-hmm. Oh, I haven't talked to her yet about this. And I usually tell them, well, I can tell you what God's will is for your life. You need to go and talk to your wife about this, because I I do believe God calls couples. And so your wife and your friends, same type of thing. I agree with the idea of if I hang out with a person, I can tell you what your giftedness is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to take a test. I don't. Mm-hmm. Need, it, you discover these things in the context of the community, the discovery, but then also the fence on the other side of you know you maybe don't need to do in in loving mm-hmm. you know what we call courageous love to step out and say this maybe isn't for you. And the shaping and forming that comes within that. Yeah, right. that's your gift, but how do you hone that gift? I right. mean, that's a whole other element to the, well, the One word of caution on, mm-hmm. on the community piece, because everybody, I guess not everybody, but most people grow up in a family, mm-hmm. which is a form of a community. And actually, they hear lots of things about their giftedness. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, many of those messages get wrapped in a negative or even shaming mm-hmm. label. Mm-hmm. So like, here's the person whose who's motivation is to get things right. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they want things just so. Mm-hmm. Well, what, are their, what does their mom call him? He's a perfectionist, mm-hmm. you know. What does his dad call him? Well, he's anal retentive. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's that's a way of getting at the truth about that person, but through an inherently shame-based label. Mm-hmm. If I ever have brain surgery, that's the guy I want on the job. Right. The mm-hmm. get it right person. I don't want somebody for whom, you know, good enough is good enough. Is that right. a brain or a heart? Yeah. <laughs> Halfway through the procedure, they're going, oops, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this person may live with a sense of shame because they cannot not be who they are. Mm-hmm. But then when they, they live that out, they're going, oh, there I go again. You know, there's mm. my perfectionistic tendencies. One of the things that I do in my practice is often reframe for people what their perception is of their own gifts hmm. and show them there's actually value in this gift. You know, I had a woman come to me once, and her gifting was all around what we call combat prevail. Mm-hmm. Like you, didn't, you wouldn't have known it to look at her because she was very diminutive. Mm-hmm. If she saw somebody being taken advantage of, it's like her claws would come mm-hmm. unhinged and she'd pounce like a tigress, okay, mm-hmm. and defend them. Mm-hmm. So when we get to what we call the feedback session, I'd send her a report on her pattern, and I, I always ask, well, you read the report. What do you think? She says, well, you know, I agree with everything in here. I said, well, what did you think about it? And she said, well, you've just basically told me what I've known my whole life. I said, what's that? She said that I'm a troublemaker. Really? <laughs> and my heart just sank because mm-hmm. I could hear, you know, the the teachers when she was growing up mm-hmm. and her parents right. and a couple of ex-husbands. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a dark side to giftedness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But this pattern had played itself out, and she'd been told she's a troublemaker. And I said, I said, listen, you're not a troublemaker. You only make trouble for people that need trouble to be made. Mm-hmm. I said, you're a warrior. Mm-hmm. You know, and the tears started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She had never seen that that gift could have value. Mm-hmm. And, and And so many people live under this sense of shame about the very thing that God has given them. And I, I really think the evil one uses that to, to get people, to prevent people from using their gifts. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.